to Zechariah 6. We return this morning. We'll pick up at verse 9 and read through the end of the chapter. Zechariah 6, this is at page 795. 795 in your pew Bibles, if that helps you out. Uh, We've made our way, haven't we, through Zechariah's eight night visions, as they are called, and it has been quite an adventure. We've seen horsemen reporting in the darkness of Myrtle, and then uh, chariots bursting from shining bronze mountains as the sovereign Lord of hosts both rules and brings justice to the nations. And of course, the gospel. We've seen humble craftsmen dismantling the horns of great nations. The ceaselessly watching, searching eyes of the Lord, both protecting and purging his church from sin in the pictures of the great golden lampstand, a giant flying scroll, a woman named Wickedness stuffed in a basket and carried far away. We've seen sin forgiven and righteousness given in exchange as the high priest Joshua received his change of clothes, remember, from the putrid stinking robes to purified and very close to the center of all of these visions, this great word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Also very near the center of those visions, we were given, weren't we, that tantalizing prospect of a Messiah who would come and who would ultimately accomplish all of this and bring to fruition and completion all of God's mighty plan. We heard his name briefly mentioned to Joshua, the high priest, in chapter 3, verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And that's all he told us. If that left you wanting to hear more about this enigmatic figure, this branch, and hopefully it did, then you will be delighted by today's passage. It is in some ways the climax of the visions, though it is not itself a vision. Let's make that clear. What we're about to read now is actual history. This is an act of obedience on Zechariah's part to the command of God. It is a symbolic act, to be sure, but very powerful indeed, as we ourselves know symbolic acts can be, both from scripture and from our own experience. And in carrying out this act, a burst of revelation is given to them and to us concerning our Messiah, the branch. It is to us a message of salvation, but also, as you will hear, a summons. A summons as well, and all of that wrapped up in surprise. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. Specifically, we ask that you would send your spirit again, as you have in the past, into our hearts and into our midst. In fact, he is already here, so we simply ask that he will do that marvelous work of opening our ears to receive marvelous things into our hearts from your law. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Zechariah chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord, as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Let me pause here a second to say you may have noticed that the names have changed slightly here. No problem. We know lots of people in the Bible have two different names to describe the same person. You can think of some in your heads. This may be the names uh, here in verse 14 by which these men who brought the gold and fashioned it want to be or are appropriately uh, preserved in the official Record No conflict between the beginning and, and this part of the passage. Verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. How kind of the Lord in his providence, isn't it, to bring us once again to a text just perfectly fitted for the season, as we've seen him do over and over again over these years. This is the time of year, of course, that we celebrate Advent, that is the appearance of our Savior in human flesh, the Messiah incarnate for our salvation. How blessed we are, aren't we, to have so luminously clear, set before us these things that to Zechariah's contemporaries, well, they were still sort of shadowy, weren't they? Still sort of types and foreshadowings and, and not nearly the fullness of the picture that you and I enjoy and possess in these days. How surprised they were in some ways as different doors were Hold back on God's revelation, like the, you know, the doors on your Advent calendar to reveal one aspect or another of that coming Savior and the salvation that he brings and, and the, the summons. And those are the three points I want to consider this morning. As a matter of fact, the surprise, the Savior, and the summons. First, surprise. 
surprise, it's full of it, how surprising this whole scenario we just read must have been to them in ways that it truly simply isn't to us because we've grown accustomed to these things, you see. We've grown accustomed to hearing them and looking on these realities to which these symbols at that time pointed ahead. We see today how they've been and are being fulfilled by our Savior, Jesus. Now, uh, I don't know how surprising it was for the people to see Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah arriving from Babylon with gold and silver. Uh, We're not even told whose gold and silver it is that they're bringing. Well, it's probably safe to think that uh, they're bearing gifts from the fellow Jews who remain back in Babylon and have grown fairly comfortable and even prosperous there. If so, then we can understand that they they feel in Babylon, these Jews, they, they feel for their fellow Jews struggling now in Jerusalem, and maybe they even have a sense of obligation to the holy city, not unlike Zionists do today. A little little more surprising is what Zechariah is told to do with the silver and gold that the three men bring. Not sell it, uh, not turn it into uh, building materials for the temple, not distribute it to the returned exiles for their welfare. No, he's told by God to make a crown. Make a crown out of it. I assume they, they're heading to Josiah's house in verse 10 because Josiah is a craftsman in, in metal. Surprising, I say, because the very act of fashioning a crown in Jerusalem, particularly in that specific day, would be to risk a serious misunderstanding with even more serious real-world ramifications. A crown. A crown conveys a message, doesn't it? It implies power, it implies rule, authority, maybe even autonomy. And in those days in the Persian Empire, a threat. A threat to the current regime. Persia, we know from the history, has just been expending a great deal of effort on establishing their rule and asserting their dominance in the empire and maintaining that. So this is fairly risky business, making a crown and surprising. Another fairly surprising development is that the crown is actually a plural in the Hebrew The word is not crown, it is actually crowns, but with a singular verb. What are we going to make of that, you you linguists and linguists in training? Well, so we imagine a crown, don't we, of two ringlets, one silver and one gold, intertwined or attached together somehow, two crowns that form a single crown. What is really surprising is what they do with that crown. Uh, Let's back up with me for just a minute and ask ourselves, who wears a crown? Who wears a crown? Well, a civil authority, right? Someone who rules in state government. A king. So if anyone in Jerusalem were the likely candidate for wearing a crown, who would it be? Zerubbabel, 
right? Zerubbabel, the governor. And even more so because we know that he's a descendant of David, don't we? We've learned that over the past weeks and months and therefore rightful heir to the throne of Judah. He's in a position of Davidic descent. In fact, we we have both Matthew and Luke, remember, listing Zerubbabel among Jesus' ancestors and their their genealogies of Jesus Christ. So, that leads to a question, doesn't it? Where is he? Where is Zerubbabel on this day, this, this coronation day? Where is he? Well, he's nowhere to be seen. He's totally absent from the picture, maybe even absent from Jerusalem altogether at the moment. One commentator suggests that maybe he had temporarily returned to headquarters, so to speak, as Nehemiah did some 80 years later. At any rate, it's probably a good thing, isn't it? If you think about this and what I've already said, it's probably a good thing that Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, the heir of the throne, was not there. Because had he been there, this would most certainly have been viewed as a very politically seditious uh, act by the Persian authorities. And of course, it would have played right into the hands of those neighbors of Jerusalem and Judah that we've been hearing about so much. Remember them? They're accusing suspicious, hostile neighbors who would now have the proof to present to the Persians that this is a rebellious little group here. But back to the point. What's really surprising is not what he doesn't do with the crown now, but here's the surprise. Here's the zinger. It's what he does. Verse 11, God commands, set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. (laughs) excuse me really a crown on a priest can't you hear the gasps can't you see them covering their their mouths and whispering to each other he's putting he's putting the crown on the priest's head does Zechariah know what he's doing is he is he lost his marbles doesn't he know surely he remembers priests and kings are separate distinct utterly distinct and separate things This priest, we've already seen him in the fourth vision, and even before that, he wears a turban, we saw in that vision. Remember, the turban was placed on his head. He's not wearing a crown? Well, yes and no. (laughs) Joshua is crowned, but not permanently. This is a, remember we called it a symbolic Act. This is not a political coup. We're reminded of the line from the fourth vision, aren't we? Back in chapter 3, verse 8, that Joshua, the high priest, and his friends who serve with him are a sign. They're a sign. A sign of what? Well, you know better. The question is a sign of whom? The branch. That's what we learned back in chapter 3. This isn't about Joshua. This isn't about Joshua at all. Joshua, the high priest, is incidental. This is about the one to whom Joshua points. The one he foreshadows, the one he anticipates, of whom he is a type. The fulfillment is the branch, the Messiah. We know him better by the name 
Jesus for, you just heard it, he will save his people from their sins. So, can't you just hear those onlookers again now? Who moments before were gasping and whispering at the sight of the crown on Joshua's brow. Now, sighing relief, you know, when Zechariah declares, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Ah, now we get it. Now we understand, Zechariah. Now it all becomes clear. They remembered, you see, what the prophet Isaiah had written. They remember Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's family, a what? Branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. And Jeremiah too, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Which brings me to the second point. There was the surprise. Now, let's look at the Savior. Who is he? Who is this branch? Who is this Messiah to whom they looked and, and in whom we trust today? Was he a king? Or was he a priest? Well, king or our priest and you say yes <laughs> he's he's both he's both in one and that i know this is a no-brainer to you you're used to it but to zechariah's group this was huge this was a it was a surprise another surprise those offices of king and priest you remember they were they were distinguished delineated from one another so much so you remember that the attempt of one famous king named Isaiah to usurp the priestly role and office and take into himself resulted in a case of leprosy. Remember, from the forehead down. So it's no small thing for them to hear, to learn that the Savior is both. He's priest and he's king. I say it's nothing new to us. We've got Hebrews 7, right? We've all read about our Savior who is a priest in the order of who? Melchizedek, precisely. The man who is both a priest and king in Salem in Abraham's day. He's combined the two now in himself and he exercises both of those offices in perfect harmony on behalf of the church of you as a gift my students in ukraine offered me a small mace that uh, in fact still sits on my desk it's basically a stick with a spiked ball on the end of the stick. They handed it to me and as I looked at it and tried to muster as much gratitude as I could for the medieval looking instrument, they went on to explain to me that just months before my having arrived in Ukraine, President Petro Poroshenko had been sworn and in as Ukraine's new 
president. And during his inauguration ceremony, Poroshenko had held high a long mace, the Ukrainian symbol of power. Similarly, we see royals, don't we, holding scepters in their hand. Well, Jesus is king, to be sure. He's king of the church. He's king of the world. He's king of kings, of all kings. But he is also priest. He is the perfect priest king, your savior is. As priest, he ministers to us, his flock, with compassion and love. As king, he rules us, but not with a sword, with sacrifice. This king has died. This king has laid down his life. He said it himself, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so Alexander McLaren writes this, his rule is wielded in gentleness. His scepter is not the warrior's mace, nor the jeweled rod of gold, but the reed, the emblem of lowliness of his heart and of authority guided by love. Behold your king, priest, your priest, king. It's a perfect combination, isn't it? priest and king. It's the priest who becomes the king. That's the order. He's the priest who becomes the king, who takes the throne, not merely for the sake of unifying the two offices, but because it's convenient, but to do so harmoniously, verse 13. And from that union of priest and king together to work in us peace. And for us, for all those who willingly come under the priest-king's rule, there is peace. Shalom. Remember, as the word, that full-orbed, wonderful word. I hope that's you. I hope that it's you that this day knows who this day knows that peace for whom this Christmas season finds you rejoicing in the words of another prophet that you know him, that you believe in, that you love, that you follow him whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you know him? Do you know that peace that comes only by knowing him? It's by exercising both of those. You see, both of those offices of priest and king perfectly that Jesus not only purchased our redemption as priest, but applies it to us mightily, sovereignly as king. And in so doing, reconciles us to God. Isn't that marvelous? In so doing, he has brought about for us that 
peace on earth, goodwill to men. That peace on earth, goodwill towards man, it, it's spreading, isn't it? It's spreading, 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 spreading around the world. The branch, verse 12, is branching out. He is building his temple, verse 13, by which he means to indicate so much more than just a little building there in, in the corner of ancient Near East, you know, in Jerusalem. That's not the temple Primarily, that's being spoken about here, even as they're looking to build the temple in ancient Jerusalem. He is building his true temple. He is building the temple made of sinners. Sinners who have been redeemed by the shedding of the king's own blood. This temple, you know by another name. Church. Jesus, the branch, the man who is the branch, Jesus, remember what he said? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The apostles, of course, agree. As we come to Jesus, writes the apostle Peter, we are living stones built into a spiritual house. Or as Paul puts it, brings the two together wonderfully, even more wonderfully. The church is built on the foundation. Don't tell Peter, I just told you that Paul pulled it together more wonderfully than he did. Uh, I think they did about even. But Paul says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a What? Holy temple of the Lord, in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit, Paul writes to the Ephesians. Zechariah's contemporaries, they could, they could hardly have imagined, could they, that day, what has happened since their day of small things as we heard them call it. That temple has grown and grown and grown and grown and now it encompasses the globe. Hundreds of millions upon hundreds of millions of Christians have been reconciled to God through the cross work of Christ, the great priest king who now rules in majesty from his throne in glory. The principle of not by might nor by power but by my spirit was never made more clear was it than it was on the day of Pentecost when this little handful of Jews in the corner of the world exploded into a worldwide, globe-embracing church. All the nations. That's how we were called to worship this morning by the psalmist. All nations worship the Lord. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people. Those who are, verse 15, Far off, and we know that term, don't we? It's a euphemism. We've become accustomed to it, common by the time of the apostles, for the Gentiles, those who are far off. 
They've always been in view, haven't they? Even from Abraham's day, all the nations will be blessed through you. And it's still growing. The temple is still growing and growing every day. We pray every week for another place in the world where it is growing, growing not only in spite of, but in some ways because of the persecution that they're experiencing in Indonesia and in China and all these other places we're praying for. Built out of living stones, boys and girls, women and men are being brought in, they're being born in and raised in the church that surrounds the throne of the priest king. And wonder of wonders, my brothers and sisters, we get to have a part in it. And that brings me to the summons. Did it seem anticlimactic to you when we got to verse 15? And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. That seems anticlimactic, but it isn't. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is invigorating. This is the invitation. This is the call to you and to me. It's like Jesus' great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. This is our commission. This great kingdom advancement, this worldwide growth of the temple, of the church of Jesus Christ, it happens through people. It happens through people. It happens through you and through me. You're the instrument as we proclaim Christ to the nations. Yes, by our words, but also by our deeds. By your obedient life. And I say that because I think the text Demands it. Diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. If you do that, then the temple grows. So let me ask you. When people look at you, when people look at your life, your actions, do they See, I'm not talking now about whether they hear Christ from you in your words, okay? Put that aside for a minute. In your life, in your obedience, do they see Christ in the love, in the fidelity to the commandments of God, out of love, born out of love for your priest, King Jesus I love, I love it that just a few days ago at President George H.W. Bush's funeral, his pastor held up a plaque in the pulpit at Bush's funeral that his late friend and parishioner had given to him. It read, it reads, Preach Christ at all times. If necessary, use words. What a marvelous moment that was in President Bush's funeral. 
preach Christ at all times. If necessary, use words. That's the summons. Obey. Obey the Lord. Let your life be lived in such a way from this moment onward, dear Christians, that people see Christ in you long before they hear Christ from you. This is how you get to own and to enjoy and to engage in this privilege of which the prophet speaks. The bringing to pass of the fullness of the work of the one whose name is the branch. Amen.